All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, last book of the Bible. Navigate on your device so you can follow along. We're in chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 6 through 17. Revelation 12, 6 through 17. The topic, with the great dragon in murderous pursuit, God gives Jews, quote, two wings of a great eagle that they might fly into the wilderness to safety. The title of our message, Where Eagles Dare to Fled. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've worshiped you this morning from our heart. Our voices have joined together in a chorus of praise. We know that they're received by you because you love to hear from your children. We thank you for that, Lord. Our hearts are excited about that. Now we want to hear more from you uh, as you speak to us by your spirit in this anointed word. It says in the scripture, Lord, fascinatingly, that you speak to us between the soul and the spirit where no man can do uh, a, a work, Lord, but only you can. And so do that this morning. I pray you would increase our knowledge of the end times and of this book, but also speak to us where we're at so that we would be more fully equipped, Lord, uh, to, to minister your grace and your mercy to a lost world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Vesna Vulovic holds the record. On January 26, 1972, Vesna was a Serbian flight attendant. She was the sole survivor after a briefcase bomb exploded in a baggage compartment of JAT Flight 367. She holds the Guinness World Record for surviving the highest fall without a parachute, 33,300 feet. She suffered a fractured skull, three broken vertebrae, broken legs, broken ribs, broken pelvis. She made an almost complete recovery except for walking with a limp. 30 years earlier, January 1942, Luftwaffe fighters attacked Ivan Chislov's uh, Soviet bomber, forcing him to bail out at an altitude of approximately 23,000 feet. I bet he thought he was going to hold the record forever. With the air battle still raging around him, Chislov intentionally did not open his parachute. He feared that he would be an easy target. He planned to drop below the level of the air battle before pulling the ripcord. He lost consciousness before he could. Despite his injuries, he was able to fly again three months later. Bear Grylls was skydiving in Zambia in 1996 when his parachute failed. He fell 16,000 feet. Grills went through a year of rehabilitation for a broken back. The highest fall record is going to be broken one more time by a massive margin in the future. In verse 9, we're told, The great dragon was cast out of heaven, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. From heaven to earth, the hard way. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your accuser will fall from heaven. And number two, your accuser will fail on earth. Let's take a look at his fall in verses six through nine. Superheroes are always falling huge distances to the earth and surviving. Both Thor and the Hulk survive falling from the shield helicarrier in the, the Avengers. This supervillain, Satan, is going to be cast down from heaven along with the one-third of the angels who followed him in his initial rebellion. We're going to start in verse 6, where it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 
We commented on this fully last week, but I want to start here because it, it sets up the context again. In Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10, Joseph says, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to earth before you? And so the sun and the moon are Joseph's parents, Jacob and Rachel, and the 11 stars are his 11 brothers, the patriarchs of the 11 tribes of Israel, and Joseph is the 12th star. The woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars is national Israel. Satan's wrath will force Jews living in the Holy Land to flee into the wilderness. God will prepare a place where they will be safe for 1,260 days, which is the last half of the Great Tribulation. So now verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Remember that saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? It's mind-boggling to realize that Satan has access to heaven even today. He's in heaven in the opening chapters of the book of Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God, meaning angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. War will break out in heaven midway through the great tribulation. What will that be like? Don't you ever just pause sometimes and ask yourself, what is war in heaven going to be like? The book of Daniel mentions a conflict between Gabriel and another angel, the evil prince of Persia. He withstood Gabriel, hindering his coming to Daniel, but how he withstood him is a mystery. Did he just stand in the way? Was, or did they grapple? We're not told. There was a Star Trek original series episode in which two civilizations fight a war by computer. If you were hit, you surrendered yourself to a death chamber. They'd been fighting this war for centuries, but they, they fought it on computer. In the film Hook, an adult Peter Pan has an insult fight with Rufio. Is this the kind of fighting angels do? Maybe Michael says, you're a liar, 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 pants on fire. And that, what's the devil going to say to that? Uh, he's stumped. More recently, Star-Lord challenged Ronan the Accuser to a winner-take-all uh, dance-off in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So maybe they dance off. It sounds funny, but we don't know how they fight. We assume that they've got, you know, AR-15s or 17s or whatever they are. 220, 221, whatever it takes. But anyway... Uh, and, and, you know, are they lob grenades at each other, that kind of thing. The more I talk, the more ignorant I sound. So let me just get back. <laughs> let's get back into the text. You can always get laughs if you make fun of yourself, and that's not hard to do. But anyway, verse 8. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. They did not prevail is in the running for the greatest understatement of all time. The outcome of the conflict is never in question. When Satan declares war on God in heaven, uh, the outcome's not in question. You might still be doubtful that Satan and his angels could be in heaven. We read, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
There must be a place for them now, uh, meaning access, until this future time comes. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Satan is called dragon 13 times in the Bible and eight of those times are in this short chapter. In the end, the once beautiful anointed cherub that Ezekiel described, who transforms himself into an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians, turns out to be a monster. We use that kind of an analogy, don't we? We look at certain individuals and say, but he was a monster. Uh, Ted Bundy, universally, people say he was so charming until he murdered you. And, you know, he's such a charming guy, but he turned out to be what? A monster. And so Satan uh, is a monster, and that's uh, why they use this designation here more than other places, because he's getting to the end of his career. We're also given an incredible insight into the thinking about the world that we inhabit with uh, non-believers. It says here, the devil deceives the whole world. This word translated deceived has an intriguing possible definition. It can mean to roam from safety and truth and virtue. God's revealed truth is in the Bible. The devil is deceiving non-believers to question God's word. That still happens today. That's one of his primary strategies. Has God indeed said are the first recorded words of Satan in scripture. He came to our parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, and he says, has God indeed said, casting doubt on the word of God, on the truth of God, and deceiving them into thinking that maybe God didn't have their best interest in mind. He's still prefacing his deception the same way in order to deceive folks into questioning God. Non-believers roam, settling on some philosophy or politics or psychology invented by sinful men in rebellion against God. Uh, I remember my very first class at the University of California, Riverside. It's a philosophy class. A professor came out, Dr. Bernd Magnus. And he came out and he laid down his uh, lecture information. He turned the page and he said, Christianity has failed. And then he launched into a talk about existentialism, which was the nature of the class. Uh, and he might as well have come out and said, has God said? No, he's, we need human philosophy or we need politics or we need a psychology. We need something other than what God has said. However, none of those things that people roam to can save them or transform them or bring them any peace. In fact, as I've told you many times, existential philosophy, uh, those who pursue it have to be convinced not to commit suicide because it is a, an absurd, uh, it looks at the world as being absurd with no meaning and there's really no reason to live in that kind of a world and there's no afterlife so you might as well kill yourself. And so definitely not bringing people peace. Now, the farther people roam, the weirder their beliefs and behaviors come. You and I as Christians, those of us who are believers, we look at what's happening in our world today, uh, things people are standing for and saying and promoting, and we think, that is so weird. That is so beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from people being deceived and then roaming farther and farther away from God's truth. Non-believers have been roaming far away from biblical marriage for a long time. As I've told you before, 
Biblical marriage is a covenant of companionship between one biological male and one biological female in a heterosexual monogamous relationship intended to last as long as they live. That statement that all of us who are born again Christians would agree with is enough to get us in trouble nowadays. And I'm just talking about getting kicked off of YouTube or Twitter. Eventually, uh, if it makes it into the Equality Act, it will be an arrestable, finable offense. And yet that's what the Bible teaches. And you know, it's interesting about that. Biblical marriage is safe, built upon the truth, and it promotes virtue. And so that's why you can expect everybody to roam from that because Satan wants to deceive them and tell them, no, marriage is whatever you say it is. You are whatever you say you are. Nothing that God has said matters. Has God said? Non-believers need the truth, which means they need Jesus. They need to get saved. The issue isn't what they believe. They believe that because they're deceived. The issue is who they need to believe. It's what they don't believe. And so focus on the Lord. Now, secondly, your accuser will fail on earth. Always nice to know. We shouldn't laugh at it or use it as sarcasm, but there is something funny about the phrase, I've fallen and I can't get up. I know some of you have used that before, just to, to be funny. Some poor lady, that poor lady that was on television, when that, remember that ad campaign, I've fallen, I can't get up for some kind of bracelet? I always wondered why the cameraman didn't help her get up. I was just a kid at the time. It's like these nature things, uh, the terribly endangered species, and now comes the crocodile to eat the last, <laughs> get in there, save that thing. They want to interfere with nature. Or just how many videos have you seen, viral videos, where would you stop filming and help that person? Oh, look, this person's being beat up with a chainsaw. <clears throat> this will go viral. When I'm elected, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In heaven, Satan's fall won't provoke laughter, but it will produce rejoicing. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The loud voice presents what scholars identify as a hymn of praise. Salvation, strength, the kingdom of God, the power of Christ, those are constants in the created universe. They, they never change. There's never a time when they are lessened in their, uh, their availability and power. They've always been true of our God. However, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Satan became the temporary ruler of this world within boundaries God sets. History is the account of God regaining what Adam and Eve forfeited, Salvation, strength, the kingdom of God, and the power of Christ will be returned. The revelation explains when and how. If you are in Christ, you have salvation, spiritual strength. You can do all things through Christ's power. You're already a citizen of the kingdom, and you're just waiting for it to come fully. And so you know that the things that we're reading about in Revelation are true, and they're future, and they're certain. Unlike these specials or the movies that, you know, there's different outcomes for the apocalypse, there is no different outcome here. This is what is going to happen. This is what is setting up to happen. The Lord will return and he will set up his kingdom and we will go on into eternity with him. Now, we quoted from the first two chapters in Job, 
Read them and you'll get a typical example of Satan as the accuser. He has been accusing believers since the beginning. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably Satan's not interested in me here in Hanford, but he has lots of angels, uh, fallen angels. And in some way, we're uh, Christians are all being accused before God's throne. If you think about it as a courtroom scene, we all love a good courtroom drama, right? When court is in session, the accused doesn't speak to the judge. An advocate represents him or her. If the defendant does talk, he or she is out of order. We should keep our mouths shut more often and let our advocate, Jesus, do the talking. The judge sustains all Jesus's objections. And so uh, anytime the devil is saying something about you, uh, let's say it is the devil accusing you personally, and he makes some accusation, Jesus says, I object. And the father, who's the judge, says, sustained. Jury will disregard that comment. And there's, there's nothing that Satan can say that Jesus cannot object to because of what he did for us on the cross. And, and he's never lost a case. Remember Perry Mason? If you're really old, you remember Perry Mason. And his, you remember his, the, the uh, prosecuting attorney was Hamilton Berger. Hamburger. Uh, I don't know why, but I thought he never won a case. But in, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, uh, he did lose, Perry Mason did lose three cases, and it explains why. Uh, but uh, Jesus never loses a case. There's never an accusation that can come against God's beloved children that Jesus can't meet and say, oh, I just, I wish I had accounted for that on the cross. When I said it is finished, it wasn't really finished. No, that's not true. All Jesus has to do is object, and it's understood that whatever is wrong with you, he died for. And we are always declared not guilty. To be biblical, we are declared righteous or justified. God justifies the believing sinner. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And so that's what goes on when Satan is accusing us. So let it go. And you think, okay, but he accuses you through other people. It doesn't have to be before the throne. And so a lot of times you're subject to accusations from other people. Now, you're gonna to have to work out when, let's say in your workplace, it's something that you have to deal with because it uh, impinges on performance or things like that. Uh, but I would say just be open to the fact that sometimes you just want to defend yourself because you've been accused of something that either isn't true or isn't coming out the right way and you just want to defend yourself and it's better to just let Jesus handle the case because at some point Jesus will stand up and object and everything will fall into line. Verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. This of course is true of all martyrs throughout all of uh, history. The focus is probably on tribulation martyrs a great number of Jews will die during the great tribulation. Zechariah chapter 13, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, two thirds in it shall be cut off and die. And what he means is that in the end times, in the last half of the great tribulation, after the devil is thrown to the earth and he begins to super persecute the Jews, two thirds of living Jews will die during that time, but one third will survive and they will come to know Jesus. 
A martyr is someone who did not love their lives to the death. The Apostle Paul amplifies that into a way of life for us when he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Martyrdom is not contrary to God's salvation, his strength or his power. The bold testimony of a martyr is a tribute to those attributes. When you've got a a guy or a gal that does not fear death and is willing to die for Jesus Christ, that's powerful. That's super powerful. And there's many stories throughout the history of the church uh, about the martyrs. You should just pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Or if you download eSword on your computer, which is free, uh, I think it's free. No, I think well, it depends. It, just eSword. It's worth getting. Uh, they provide Fox's Book of Martyrs as a free download there, and it's a, it's a great read from time to time. I doubt any of us will be martyred, at least anytime soon. Make it a question then. Ask yourself, do I love my life more than dying, even more than dying to self? The rich young ruler comes to mind. He sincerely desired to follow Jesus, Nevertheless, we read, this is Jesus saying to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. You can be sure that the Lord will tell you something like he told the rich young ruler sometime in your life, or maybe many times. It might be about wealth and possessions. It might be about something or someone else that is an obstacle to your walk. The idea is that if Jesus asked you to do something, would you do it? Only you and I can answer that. And I'm guessing, using my own life and and from what I know about Christians, I'm guessing that there's been times in your life when the Lord asked you to do something that was a stretch or that was out there, And you did it, and you were blessed for it. But there might have been some times when he's asked you, or maybe he's asking you right now, something like that, and you're like hesitant because you're comfortable and you, you know, it it seems like it would be too much of a sacrifice. Think about what we know. Let's say Jesus told the rich young ruler, let's say we were there, and the rich young ruler received this information and he came to you for counsel. You'd say, hey, Your riches are nothing compared to riches in heaven. And you have an opportunity of a lifetime to walk on earth with Jesus Christ, the God, man, the savior of the world. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Riches? What kind of riches could you have that could compare with that? A.W. Tozer wrote, God wants us to know that when we have him, we have everything. And so that's the situation. And so don't, don't put yourself in that position where there are things that are hindering you from serving God. When Jesus asks, be ready to give up knowing that you will gain. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. The sea probably refers to inhabited islands, but the idea here is that The casting out of the dragon and its aftermath is not a local phenomena limited to the Middle East or to Jerusalem or to the temple. It's not just about the Jews. It is global. 
And because it is global, we know that it hasn't happened yet. The things that are described here obviously haven't happened yet. Great wrath is beyond anger. It is what we would call outrage. Satan will no longer be content to lay traps and set snares. He won't have the luxury of being patient in his temptations. He'll go 5150. He'll be in a road rage state of mind, pulling out all the stops to shed blood, especially Hebrew blood. His short time is yet another reminder that this is looking to the future. It has not happened yet. Verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Satan is stunned for a moment. Uh, He hits the earth and, and he has to shake himself up a little bit. He sees that he has been cast to the earth. Where am I? All of a sudden he has cobwebs or whatever, but shaking off his bewilderment, he realizes he's landed not just on the earth, but in the 12th chapter of the Revelation and that he has very little time left. Now we saw last week that the male child born to national Israel as their Messiah and as the savior of the world is Jesus Christ. Throughout history, the devil tried to prevent Jesus from being born. Having failed, his only strategy in the future will be to try to exterminate Jews. Why? Because if he can kill every Jew, God cannot fulfill unconditional promises that he has made to Israel. Jehovah has made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, to national Israel, to ethnic Israel. Stuff like they'll have a kingdom and that David's son will rule on the throne and the land will belong to them and they'll have the new covenant, a new heart, and all of these other things. Unconditional means that no matter their obedience or disobedience, God must do those things. He must keep his word. And so obviously, if every living Jew on planet Earth could be exterminated, God could not keep his word. And so it's, it's the devil's last hurrah will be to try and wipe out Jews. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. It's good to be reminded of two things. Number one, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And number two, the revelation draws heavily from the Old Testament. Now let's see how this applies to the eagle. Two wings of a great eagle is a common biblical image well known to the Jews. In Exodus 19 verse four, we read, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then again in Deuteronomy 32, 11, God says of himself, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. We interpret the book of the Revelation literally, but within the literal translation, there is obviously room for metaphor, and especially a metaphor that a Jew would be familiar with. They had been saved before in the Exodus by God, And he said, it was like I bore you on eagle's wings and now looking to this terrible time when they're fleeing into the wilderness from the wrath of the devil who's on the earth. God says, I will bear you on eagle's wings. It's not Gwahir, the wind lord from Lord of the Rings. And it's not gonna be an airlift provided by the United States. When I was a young Christian, that was the theory. Everybody's always trying to get the United States into prophecy and we're, you know, we're going to airlift Jews to, to safety. Um, wrong. 
Not, the United States, we'll get into that at some point. Where are we in prophecy? We're not, and that's ominous. Uh, but anyway, this is a biblical metaphor for a divine event. What happens in the Revelation is divine. It's God interfering, and everybody knows that. It isn't any country or any normal situation. Jews will flee to a place to be safe from Satan. Early in the chapter, we're told that God prepares it. The present popular pick is Petra. Nourish conveys the idea of health and prosperity. A time, time, and half a time is one of the three ways of describing the two, three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So the Great Tribulation lasts seven years, and the Bible describes it in two halves. The first three and a half years, the second three and a half years. It also calls it 1,260 days and 42 months. Each of those add up to three and a half years. God the Holy Spirit went to great lengths to establish that the revelation is talking about a literal, not figurative period of time. One proponent of the figurative position says that the last three and a half years of what they're calling the Great Tribulation, and I quote, the exact time frame of the worst tribulation in Jewish history, the Jewish-Roman War, 66 to 70 AD. So there are, it's becoming more popular today that Revelation was already fulfilled in the first century and that it's not a book of prophecy. And it absolutely blows my mind on several levels, but one is that the things that the Revelation talks about have never been more obvious in terms of the updates that we do, the biometrics and the, the cashless society and all the things we sounded like nuts predicting years ago are here and we didn't do it. Uh, the, it was just moving in that direction. But that's their point, that there was a terrible tribulation in Israel during those years. Now, as awful as that period of history was for Israel, it did not last precisely three and a half years. And Jesus said this about it. Then, during this last half of the tribulation, there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Would you say that the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 70 AD was the worst tribulation that the world has ever experienced or could possibly experience? No, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Just looking at the nation of Israel, I think an equally horrifying persecution and tribulation would have been the Holocaust. And so these guys who, who want to get out of a literal interpretation, it's just wrong. Revelation 12, 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. There are two possibilities concerning the flood. Floods, again, are a biblical metaphor for invasion. Jeremiah 47, verse two, God describes the approaching Babylonian army by saying, behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it the city and all those who dwell within it. The second possibility is that the devil does unleash a flood of water against those who are fleeing. That's possible, we don't know. Every disaster movie has that scene where the lava is coming. Lava moves pretty fast, by the way. You know, you think it's slow, but man, hot lava, boop. And uh, some of the fire guys here will tell you how fast fire moves. Wow, it's scary. And water, the same thing. Uh, and, and so that's the idea that he actually unleashes a flood and it's going to wipe them out. Uh, but in verse 16, it says, the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. 
This again, this could be a metaphor uh, or it could be literal. But whatever it is, it's within the literal reading of the revelation and he's saying, hey, it's gonna be, you know, Satan, that's gonna be quite an invasion when he and his angels come against you. And uh, it'll be like a flood uh, or it will be a flood. And this wouldn't be the first time God caused the ground to open and swallow opposition. Again, however this is accomplished, it's by divine, not human means. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The TV Bruce Banner is famous for saying, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. An enraged dragon, that's something terrifying. The rest of her offspring is believed by some scholars to refer to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists we met earlier in the Revelation, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are listed. They don't need to flee to safety because God sealed them and no harm can come upon them. And we're gonna see them again at the end of the Great Tribulation. All of them survive to the end. Not one of them is lost. Another Bible gem who keeps the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be described that way once my work on earth ends. You know, sometimes, you, I don't know how often you go to, the, uh, to a cemetery. Uh, I go to cemeteries maybe a little bit more than others because I do, I officiated a lot of funerals over the years. But you have a chance to read headstones. Um, let me ask this before I say anything. I, I wanna be sensitive. Is anybody in here associated with the Oakland Raiders headstone at the Hanford Cemetery? Anybody at all? Weirdest headstone I've ever seen. That is a true Raiders fan. I mean, it is a full-blown Oakland or Las Vegas now Raiders headstone. Uh, and uh, I, I hardly could get through the funeral I was doing next to it because it was so hilarious to me. I, I mean, if... If that, I, hey, God bless the Raiders. Uh, is that what you want to be remembered for? I would rather have my tombstone say that I kept the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The worst of times on earth are coming in the subsequent chapters, but so is Jesus. The stunt was called Heaven Sent. Luke Akins, 2016, jumped 25,000 feet from a plane without a parachute or a wingsuit. The daredevil had to direct his body in free fall using only air currents around him. He wasn't completely crazy. He laid out a high-tech 10,000 square foot net to catch him. But still, it's not something I would do. I wouldn't even jump out of an airplane with a parachute, let alone without one. In fact, I'm not ever gonna get on an airplane. But anyway, I don't wanna push the analogy too far, but there are elements in Aiken's shootless jump similar to our walk with Jesus. I'll mention a couple, but you can meditate on some more. First of all, we walk by faith. It isn't a blind faith. It isn't an ignorant faith. It isn't a reckless faith. We aren't jumping off of precipices, tempting angels to save us, but we do take steps of faith. And sometimes we find ourselves trusting too much in the world's parachutes. We want the security that we can have in the world. I told you a few weeks ago, and I want to keep telling you because it's just so cool, that we paid off the mortgage, right? And so we have no mortgage here at the church. Yeah. Oh, that's the greatest thing. And, and, but uh, 
It was, we owed $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. Where the money came from, I'm not sure, but we had it. Uh, and I realized, so, you know, the Lord, you know, he should say, you, you like that money, don't you? Because you, you, there shouldn't have been any decision. You know, what, what's to decide? You have the money paid off and you say, well, it's kind of nice to have money in the bank, isn't it? A little cushion to depend upon. You know, you don't think you're doing it, but you are. Uh, and so we, we're called to walk by faith sometimes. And, I mean, that's a puny example of faith. I mean, it's a first world kind of faith. I mean, you know, I wouldn't ever say anything like that in India. Uh, but, you know, for us, it's a big deal. But, you know, the Lord is ministering to us. And, and so we're called sometimes to walk by faith. And um, we have these worldly parachutes, not just wealth. There can, it can be anything that we're trusting in. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. The alternative to that is to build your house on sand and store up this world's goods in barns. And so we wanna be careful we're not doing that. So this morning, take off your worldly parachute. You are heaven sent to represent Jesus. Like Luke Akins, you have to navigate the currents. You have to be drawn by the wind of the Holy Spirit and let him lead. The Lord is your net, might as well jump. Amen?